Thanks for being with us. Plenty of time coming up in the show to open up the phone lines again. My apologies. There were many, many people calling in talking about paid sick days. So we will open the phones a bit later on in the show and get your voices on the program. Right now, though, we want to check in with a coffee shop owner who started his own sick uh, sick leave program long before the announcement today. And Sam Jones is joining us on the line now, the owner of 2% Jazz Coffee on the island. Sam, thank you so much for being with us. Hey, Jill. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, first, I wanted to get your reaction to the announcement. They kind of split the difference. So the announcement today is a minimum five days of paid sick leave for employees in BC. What do you think about that? Right. It's kind of, it is kind of a halfway in between job there. We were hoping for 10 days. That's what I offer my employees. And uh, I was hoping that they were going to go for 10 and maybe pay for half of those. But it looks like they're just going to make sure that employers are going to pay for at least five days, which is better than nothing for sure. How were you able then to bring in your own paid sick program? Because it is an expense, I would imagine, for you. And it is an expense for business owners. Um, I don't think of it as an expense, really. I don't think of my employees as an expense. I think that's kind of an it's, it's almost an antiquated way of thinking about uh, employees. I don't think of them as uh, a cost of goods or um, an expense. I think of them as an asset and as in in investment that I need to put money towards. They are my business. And without my staff being happy and healthy and present, I don't really have a business to begin with. What was the response then when you told your staff that you were going ahead, that you were doing this before it was legislation? Um, I put this into place uh, during COVID. So the first part of COVID when I I was determined to stay open if I could and I wanted to continue my my business. I'm part of this group called in Victoria called the Bread and Butter Collective, and it's a hospitality owners organization. And we've all seen for years and years that we work in a broken um, industry. And so our goal is to try to fix as many parts of the industry as we can. And one of those is uh, by paying our, our employees well, and then paying them for sick days too. We don't want our employees to come into work sick. It doesn't look good. It doesn't feel good. And our employees shouldn't have to choose between paying for food, paying for rent, or coming to work. It just, that should not be an option ever. Right. And were your employees then pleased with this to at least know that they had that option, that they, they wouldn't, if they were thinking about it, oh, if I don't go to work, I don't get paid, that they no longer had to think of it that way? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a comfort for them, for sure, because, you know, in in these days when even if you come to work with a sniffle or a, a cough, even though it's not COVID, it's a cold and the purse and the purse perception of that is that you're going to be frowned upon. Um, so employees, A, they don't want to go to work when they're sick because it doesn't feel good, but they don't want to go to work and be chastised for being at work when they're sick. So to have the opportunity for them to stay home and get paid and get better and then come back to work happy is is always a good choice. And my employees certainly appreciate that without taking any advantage of it at all so far.
Right. And and that's a few people have emailed in asking about that, saying if it's five days, do you have to work at a business for a certain amount of time before you qualify that? Does it apply to part time workers? And those details all kind of being announced today. But do you think people are too quick to go to a place where they make the assumption that employees are going to somehow try and abuse the system? I think so. I've got great employees. I have lots of faith in people being honest and good. And uh, I only get treated like that by, by my employees. They, they're also good. They're not going to take advantage of something that I'm offering them. Um, I can see why people get concerned about that, but I, I don't think it's true. And I think I, I heard uh, today that in a survey of employers in D.C., 98% of them responded by saying their employees do not take advantage of sick days. And so, I mean, that's almost that's almost all of them. 98% yeah. is, is close enough to 100%. Uh, You mentioned that you've been giving your employees 10 paid sick days, and this is not to suggest that anybody who does this is is taking advantage, but do they generally, do employees generally make use of all of their sick days? Um, So far, I have not had that. Um, I've got one person who's up to five sick days right right now, and my my informal policy with it is after after. After I give them their free five sick days without question, I don't need a doctor's note or anything. But after that, you know, I I start to pay a bit more attention, maybe as as I ought to, right? I don't want to be taken advantage of. I don't believe I'm going to be, but after five or six days, sure, I'm going to start to check, and I might ask for a doctor's note. But really, I mean, what if a person has children and they still have to come to work even though their kids are sick? I want my employees to be able to stay home with their kids when their kids are sick to take care of them so they can get back to school and the parents can come back to work. And you mentioned, too, that you don't consider it a cost or that your employees are a cost, but it would still be then part of your budget that you would have to budget in what what it, what the cost is of, of offering and paying for sick days. We had some callers earlier in the, in the program saying that's fine, but they would then likely have to pass that cost on to the consumers. How do you deal with that? Um, I, I try to absorb as much as I can. I pay a, a living wage to all my employees as well. So they're all making over $20 an hour plus their, their sick time. And sure, it, it adds up. And even though I don't consider it a cost, it is on my spreadsheets as a cost, but that's not how I think of it. I think of it as if I don't do do this, if I don't treat my employees well, I don't have any cost. I don't have any income all, all, all of a sudden. I think that we really need to change how we think about our employees um, and people. Just, we, we have to treat them better. We have to treat our employees like, like we want to be treated. I'm not, I'm not, taking all the money out of my company and keeping it. I distribute, like my, my company distributes what it takes in to its, to its employees and to its suppliers as well. I'm a coffee company, so that's, that's, a, 
it's easy for me to point to my coffee growers and say, you know, they need to be treated really well. And I have done that for years, but I can't do that on the backs of my own employees and vice versa. I can't, I, I, I can't treat my employees well on the backs of my suppliers. And if that means my costs go up and if that means that my prices have to increase a bit, then that's just what it is. And I think uh, we're all going to start to see an increase of costs due to lots of reasons, not employee-based reasons. That's just part of it. There's transportation issues, as we're all very conscious of right now in BC. And that's that's part of the equation. But the human part should never be um, called a cost. It's They're people. They're not a cost. All right, Sam, thanks so much for making time for us today to talk more about this. Appreciate it. Hey, no problem. Thanks for reaching out. I appreciate you. Thanks for being with us. Well, BC's Human Rights Commissioner has released a new report. This takes a look at what is being described as a disturbing pattern of discrimination in BC when it comes to policing. And this report includes analysis from several departments, including the Vancouver Police Department, Nelson Police, Surrey, Duncan and Prince George RCMP detachments. And joining us to talk more about what is in this report is Kasari Governor, BC's Human Rights Commissioner, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for the invitation to be here. Uh, I mentioned just some of the police forces where information was taken, but can you talk a little bit more about what specifically you were looking at in this report? Yeah, well, first of all, by way of context, the the research really comes from, as, as we all know, I think from the news over the last couple of years of a huge global protest around uh, systemic racism and policing, police brutality, the impact on Indigenous people and Black people and other racialized people. And really understanding that the, 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 the real lived impacts of that are mental health, on um, people's mental health, on people's physical well-being, potentially even on their lives itself. So it was in that context um, that the Legislative Committee uh, was formed to look into what revisions need to happen to Police Act, or what amendments need to happen to the Police Act, and that we were invited to make these submissions. In order to support those submissions, we went out to these police forces and asked them for the data they did collect around um, kind of the race, uh, race-based disparities or what we could learn from that data about race-based disparities in the areas of arrests or, or what, what some folks call chargeable incidents in the context of mental health and wellness checks uh, and in the context of strip searches. So those were some of the areas that we, we delved into a little bit more deeply. And I know even on a, a federal level, if we look at the D- Department of Justice statistics from over from the past few years, they show statistically across the country a, a very large, based on percentage of population, a much larger percentage of Indigenous people and, and people who would be, I, I think, considered more marginalized in the justice system. And it looks as though this report or what you found in BC is very similar, kind of mirrors that. Yes, absolutely. And I think it won't be surprising to many, uh, particularly the people who have experienced this themselves. But in some ways, the statistics are still, even if they're not surprising, they're they're shocking on a, on a certain human level. Indigenous men in Vancouver are over 17 times more likely to be arrested than their presence in the population would predict. Black people are highly overrepresented in three of the five jurisdictions we looked at in arrest statistics. Uh, Hispanic and Arab West Asian people 
also overrepresented in many police jurisdictions. So we we really see that the stats, um, while again may may not be surprising, particularly for those who live it, uh, really kind of bring home the problem that we're talking about here. And I guess uh, I, I don't want this to sound overly simplified, but why is that? Uh, why why is this systemic racism happening? Why are we seeing such yeah such large numbers when we look at the percentage and especially based on percentage of population? Why are we continuing to see such a large number of people like you say such overrepresentation? Well, I think you know what what we're talking about here really is systemic racism, and I want to be clear that what we're not talking about is. Are there a few a few racist police officers or a few bad apples, as the expression goes? Not, we're not even talking about whether there are many bad apples. We're really talking about why, how is the system designed to create these kinds of highly disparate impacts? So we know, for example, that there are a number of, of theories out there around why this uh, why this happens. Certainly one of those, and we have good evidence of this, is that there is bias in policing. And we can isolate that cause by looking at proactive police measures. So where police are uh, doing police stops, for example, they're not stopping people because of a, of a call or a report that they got that targets this person. They're not immediately trying to intervene in ongoing uh, criminal activity they are proactively stopping and asking questions. And we can see in those kinds of activities the evidence of bias. We also know that um, there is some evidence that folks are over-involved in the criminal justice system who come from, who who are Indigenous or Black or, or come from other racialized backgrounds. And that can also be rooted in systemic racism of many other uh, systems in our world. So labor force inequities, intergenerational trauma, socioeconomic disparities. There's all kinds of factors that that, that lead us to these conclusions. I know in the report as well, in the release today, you also talked about your concerns about the limitations to the availability of that information, the police data for research to, to look at this. Were you able to get enough information, do you think, to get a clear picture on of this? Well, I think we certainly, there are limitations to the data, but I think what we got is is hard to dispute. It, the numbers are very clear. Uh, we realized that data is collected on many police files around race and ethnicity, or at least perception of race and ethnicity. There are some significant problems still uh, in terms of how data is retained. We've made some recommendations on that. So, for example, the RCMP has different retention schedules or, or periods to pace based on what kinds of data. So, for example, on well-being and street check info, they only retain that for a two-year retention period. So we'd originally asked for 10 years worth of data to try to be able to discern some of the patterns. Well, we're only able to get access to two years of reliable data from the RCMP on these issues. They do not have a historical data warehouse in BC, unlike in other provinces. So we've made some recommendations really for the sake of transparency and community accountability that data should be retained longer for research purposes. I also wanted to ask you about when we're talking about cases involving people with mental health issues. And I know one of the findings was that people with mental health issues have frequent interaction with police services. And there is a greater impact, again, when we're looking at people that are Indigenous and people. I know some of that information came from the Nelson Department. Does that show systemic racism or does that show a breakdown in in healthcare or a breakdown in the system that is meant to help people with mental health issues? 
I think it, it, it's a yes and uh, kind of answer. I think it can be both of these things and, in fact, that they are interrelated. So, yes, in Nelson, we, we learned that Black people are 4.7 times more likely to appear in a mental health incident involving the police than their presence in the general population would predict. But it is really some of these confluence of factors um, that leads to these issues arising, and our recommendations really get at that. So, for example, we have argued for detasking the police, really changing our model of police to say police shouldn't be the first responders in mental health incidents. They should be there as a last resort when when needed. And there's some really interesting programs um, that we've looked at across the country and across the states uh, and elsewhere that demonstrate that if we put community-based services first, if if we set up systems that where people can call crisis lines and immediately access community-based health services, that they're more likely to have stronger outcomes, that people then get the health services they need instead of being caught up in this police system. Right. And that's another phrase, I think. People have heard the phrase defunding the police. But when you're talking about detasking, do you mean it's more of, of figuring out what's perhaps a more suitable response? That's exactly it. So this isn't a punitive model. This isn't meant to be punitive of police. It's meant to think about what really keeps us safe as a community. If we uh, criminalize activities that are really based in people's uh, health, is that actually keeping us safer? If we create a system in which the impacts are disproportionately felt by racialized people, that actually is undermining safety for all of us. It's taking away resources from serious violent crimes and uh, response and putting it towards uh, issues that are much more effectively dealt with outside of the framework of the criminal justice system and police. What would you like to see happen next as far as I know there were uh, 29 recommendations in this report uh, based on these findings. What do you think the next step is? Well, the the legislative committee that we are making these recommendations to, I know, is going through a process of really considering the the recommendations, and they have received feedback from a number of other um, organizations, including Indigenous uh, leadership and First Nations leadership. They'll then be putting out a report. I believe the deadline is in April of next year, uh, and then we'll see what happens with those recommendations. By by saying, we'll see, I don't mean to send in a highly passive way. My office will be keeping a very, very close eye to look at how are these recommendations being adopted, if they are, and are they actually being implemented. Um, And we will be monitoring that and actively pushing for change. One of the powers I have under the legislation is is to require uh, bodies to come back and report to me about how well they're doing on, on on realizing the recommendations that we make. And I can then report that back to the public. All right. Thank you so much for joining us and breaking down the report for us today. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. Well, lots of announcements being made today about flooding, about highways reopening. But we started the show with the announcement from the B.C. government. And this was the announcement about paid sick leave in B.C. So for the first time ever, we are creating permanent problems by paid sick leave starting January 1st, 2022. After an extensive consultation and with input from many voices, we have made a decision. All workers covered by Employment Standard Act will be entitled to a minimum of five days of employer-paid sick leave each year. 
That was Minister Harry Baines making that announcement earlier today. We're joined now by Paul Holden, who is the president and CEO at the Burnaby Board of Trade. Thank you so much for being with us. That's a pleasure, Jill. How are you? Very well. How about you? Good, thank you. What is your response to this announcement? Well, I think my first response is, is really, why now? Um, it's, uh, we already have in place recognizing uh, the, the unusual situation we've all been in through COVID, and, and we've had a, a COVID um, sick leave plan in place now for, for some while, where employees have three days of, of paid sick leave. Um, which was recognizing the fact that we're in a really unusual time. And, and in my mind, that, that current program could have been extended under the, the, the COVID banner, so to speak. Um, what I'm concerned about is on, on the backs of everything else that's, that's landed on, on businesses during the pandemic in terms of uh, impact to their business, supply chain issues, weather issues, um, uh, staffing issues, ad- additional costs all over the place, why now are we adding this on, onto the plates of businesses? I just don't understand why it had to be done, A, uh, in, in really quick time, and B, with 30-something days' notice. And the issue then being, when you talk about the three days that were brought in for, through COVID, is it sh- the shifting of that cost, whereas what the government was paying for is now being shifted to the business owners? Uh, well, yeah, I think what it is, is it's moving from something which was a program um, put in place to recognize uh, a, a pandemic situation that has had immeasurable effects on, on people and, and businesses. And it's now enshrining it in law. Um, and it's now making it something that is, 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 is there for all businesses. And it's, it's part of, of, of the, 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 the BC law. And, and, and I just don't understand why um, it had to be done uh, relatively quickly. I, I know that we heard extensive consultation had taken place, but it wasn't really that extensive. It, it, it started in September, and here we are today with the announcement. And like anything, the devil's in the detail as well. There are lots of aspects of this that we don't feel have been fully fleshed out. And, and I really just think it was rushed in um, businesses, many of whom um, are are in the process of completing their budgets for next year and their business plans for next year, have now had this dumped on them with 30-something days notice. And to me, I I just think it's it's more than a little tone deaf. Uh, The minister in making that announcement, the Labour minister that we just heard from, uh, made a point of saying they kind of went down the middle in that they were looking at either three days, five days or 10 days. I know there have been groups coming out like the BC Federation of Labour who wanted the 10 days of leave saying that that five isn't enough. Uh, What are your thoughts on the fact that they've kind of couched it in, in finding middle ground? Well, I think that's better than not. Um, you know, I certainly think that, that, that 10 days was, 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 would not have been something uh, that, that we or our members uh, would have been comfortable with. I know it was something that the federal government just brought in to cover the, the relatively small sort of sliver of businesses that are governed by, by federal employment law. Um, so I'm glad that the province decided to act on its own uh, intentions and, and with its own plans uh, to, to, to govern businesses in BC. But I still don't think it's something that needed to be done right now on top of everything else that's, that's hit business. Uh, how much of an impact do you think this will have on smaller businesses? And we've had quite a few people calling in and people who run small businesses saying it's it's going to have a huge cost in that you're either going to have a scenario where you can't replace the person or if you can, you're then going to be paying for the other employee to be gone that day. Uh, how do you kind of weigh the costs of that against the costs of people coming to work sick and perhaps infecting and making others in the workforce sick? 
Well, yeah, Jill, we, we've been very clear all along in our conversations about this that, that we, um, you, you know, we definitely support um, uh, businesses offering sick leave. It's important that employees don't come to work when they're ill, um, and we certainly support that uh, that, that notion wholeheartedly. Um, but I think, you know, and again, this is the point you've just made there. There are certain industries more affected by that scenario than others where you think of hospitality and retail, which, as we know, have really had a, a, a very hard time of things you know, th- throughout the COVID period. Um, minim- increases to minimum wage being one of the additional costs they've had to bear. Um, and for those people, it is. It's, it's, it's a double whammy. You know, you have the person who may not have been there all that long, may not have worked many shifts. Uh, calling in sick and they now get paid and you've got to pay for someone to replace them so it's it's a it's a cost that that businesses are now going to have to wrestle with and one that they could have done with more than a month's notice on. I'm looking at the fact sheet or the quick facts that the government put out along with the announcement, because as you said, oftentimes in these announcements, the devil is in the details. So this is paid sick leave that the government says it's all workers covered by the Employment Standards Act, and that includes part-time employees. Do you know how it works, though, as far as, as you just mentioned, how long does it matter how long somebody has been working with a company, with a business before they qualify for this, uh, that kind of thing? Yeah, from what I understand, you have to be employed for 90 days, um, but there's no requirement from what I can see to actually having worked a certain minimum number of days within that 90-day period. And, you know, we, we've, we, we know of businesses who, who often employ casual labor or part-time labor and have had people on their books, so to speak, for some while who maybe haven't needed their services for some while and, and, and maybe they haven't been uh, been coming in on a regular basis, but they may now qualify for having been employed by this organization for, for 90 days. Um, and there's no minimum requirement for what I can see on how many days they have to have worked within a defined period to qualify for this for this payment. So, again, I, I think that's something which a lot of us would have liked the opportunity to, to have debated in, in much more detail. And a few people were calling in earlier as well and asking about the idea of banked sick pay, uh, which I've always thought is a bit of an odd one. And maybe that's because I've never worked in a scenario where that's something that people do. But my, my guess is this doesn't involve the people then at the end of the year. If you've not taken any sick days, you can bank the five days. But do you know uh, any of those details? Uh, I don't think it's in there. And, um, and from what I can gather, it isn't. And if that's the case, then I'm very glad it isn't, because I think the notion of people... Um, banking sick days. I mean, if, if the goal of this is to stop people coming to work sick, then there's a bit of an incentive for people to come to work sick if they know they can bank sick days at the end of the year. So I'm glad it's not in there. Um, I don't think there's much merit to that idea. And um, so, yeah, that, that's one that I don't think is in there. And if, if that's the case, I'm, I'm quite glad. And what are your thoughts on this idea? And certainly I would hope it's, it's not a huge number of people, but there is some concern about abuse of the system and the people that perhaps get the sniffles every Friday or only on Fridays or only on Mondays. Are you concerned that, and hopefully again, for the most part, people are honest and won't do this, but are you concerned about abuse? Uh, not really, Jill. I think, I think I've, I'd like to think I've got <laughs> enough faith in people that that's not something that's going to be a huge issue. Um, obviously, you'll always have some people that, that, that might do things that, uh, that, that others wouldn't. But no, I think generally speaking, abuse of the system is not something that's been particularly high on, on, on our radar and, and on, our, on, on, on our list of concerns when it comes to, to this kind of program. And when you mentioned, too, that, that some businesses obviously will be more impacted by this than others, are there certain parts of the workforce or certain businesses that you are more concerned about as far as what could happen in January when this comes in? 
Well, I think what we've seen through through our membership is, um, you know, there are some businesses that have have fared reasonably well through through COVID, either because of the sector they're in or or, or the kind of product or service they provide. Um, but there are some businesses where obviously they've been been quite hammered during this period. And I think immediately I think of the, the retail and, and, and hospitality sectors, which have been hit by all sorts of things during this last last couple of years. And 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 when I look through the detail I've seen on on, on this this particular plan, um, I think this is just another. Um, another impact on on those sectors. One final question. It does say that if you're a worker and you you do take your sick days, your employer may request reasonably sufficient proof of illness. Does that mean a doctor's note? Or what do you think that means as far as what, what employers can do to make sure that their workers are in fact sick? Yeah, I imagine that's what it's referring to. Uh, Jill, I would have thought that a doctor's note or something of that order would be um, what they're referring to in that. And, and you know, I, 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 I don't think that's anything that's too unreasonable. I, I think um, in certain situations, I, I, I'm not sure it's reasonable in everyone, but uh, I'm sure there are situations where it would be a reasonable request to make. Yeah, that doctor's note might actually be a Zoom call recording now that we're you doing things so differently. Yes, you never know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I know there will be a lot more uh, more discussion on this and more details coming out. Paul, thanks so much for your time today. That's a pleasure.